वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक दिंट टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द रेफिकेशन ऑफ ऑब्जेक्ट्स विल थिंक ऑफ रेफिकेशन इन वेरियस डोमेन्स वाइल ट्राइंग टू अंडरस्टैंड हाउ अ नियर कंप्लीट प्रॉपर्टी रिच पिक्चर इज मॉडल फ्रॉम द पार्शल हाउ डू वी सी द नॉट डायरेक्टली एक्सेसिबल what are the hidden interiors of the sun or the earth like and how or why do we believe our inferences how do we mentally rotate objects in the 3d space are rayified objects always fundamentally non sharp what is context when are both spatial and verbal data essential what are objects for a programming language can everything be modeled what's the future of the nominalism versus realism debate and are we over concretizing the human world we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr shravan hanasoge He is an astrophysicist at TIFR Mumbai. His work is at the intersection of stellar physics and machine learning. Dr. Indrajit Mani, he is a retired computer scientist and currently based in Thailand. He is interested in areas such as natural language processing, AI, knowledge representation, reasoning and narratology. And Dr. Varsha Singh She's a cognitive psychologist and teaches at IIT Delhi. She tries to study mind, brain and the body and the pathologies. So, um, Varsha, why don't we start with you because you're a psychologist and maybe let's start with the more laymanish notion of what an object is and if one have to apprehend an object or visualize an object or just look at an object you never see all aspects of it at once because it lives in the 3d world uh so from our standpoint what is that process and how do we form a mental image of it what's the link between the physical object and however we visualize it obviously there are big questions and we can keep going in many different directions but help us get some some hang of it so when you look at an object uh and i'm coming from what i usually do so what we call is a stimuli something that stimulates the sensory organ mm-hmm. if i'm looking at a visual object which is accessible to my visual system i'm going to treat as every feature of this as something that's informing me a little bit about the properties of the characteristics of the object you mean things like texture color texture color these would build for instance a category such as an animal which kind the size for elephant and yours so these are distinguishing features of a particular object and we assume that this sensory information helps us so that's something that i'd like to look at how is sensation and perception tied together how does this build over a period of time and that's sort of essential to object categorization but it's an interesting question and some of it is still open ended and we don't understand 
for instance, I teach this in the cognitive science program that we have chairs which are of different kind, different shapes. They vary tremendously, but there's a functional aspect to an object as well, something on which you sit. So it could come in more features than you can actually expose yourself to or you would be exposed to. But, but that, over a period of time, from the time we are like toddlers or something, uh, the the notion of chairness in your example, like what it means for something to be a chair and that yeah. property of being a chair, yeah, does that keep growing over throughout our lifetime? Like wh- how how does that work? I know it's m- probably a somewhat philosophical question, but what do what what do you say to that? Because we don't take all aspects of a chair every time we look at a chair. Right? Sure. So to me, an object is really the functional aspect of it rather than all the features in which it is available. So there's a possibility that you could look at a very small toy of an elephant and still categorize it as an elephant or a template that's retrieved of an elephant. Size is certainly not informing me out here. Right. So... Each has its own feature is what I'm also struggling with. How do we build these templates over a point? The functional aspect certainly needs to be consistent or you see a consistency in it for sure. And this template, as you refer to it, gets built over time through a lived experience or it somehow comes as archetypes as we come to the world? I do subscribe that it's built over a period of time. I don't really study visual perception, but for instance, I study slightly more complex things such as rewards, hmm. which come in a much more variable fashion than a object, like a physical object. What is rewards and what is rewarding could take a lot of form and there's a lot of variation within the person, between people, across time periods. So with cumulative experiences, this category or the representation of this alters tremendously, moment to moment, time to time. So it's, I do believe that experience certainly translates into it. But this one consistent property of what is reward is something that I like, something that I would work for, something that I would at any given point put in efforts to obtain, would remain common across all categories and variability. Got it. So the definition of a reward is certainly something that I'd be working for. So in terms of objects and categorization, they could take a lot of form and they would certainly be adapted and change over a period of time with experience. But there's a functionality of it, like a defining feature, which would always be consistent. And what happens when one sees a new object? Uh, an object whose function one hasn't seen before. Um, so is that then somehow derived from the previous templates or uh, how does how does that become a new template? I do think that the reference point is an old template. So even if it's a completely new object, let's assume there's a, there's a completely new object fallen on Earth. Nobody's seen it before. You, you're most likely to think, what does it remind me of? What does it look of? What does it feel of? You will rely on the visual cues or you'd rely on some sensory cues and try and match it with something which is a prior. To start with a completely true zero saying this doesn't even belong to Earth will be difficult for you to categorize. So the priors are necessary. So in that sense, any categorization of the new object would be in reference to the earlier exposure. 
Got it. And Shravan, as as you and your fellow colleagues uh, study these various celestial bodies, stars, galaxies, these sorts of things, um, are they heavily colored by priors? Like, is that an expectation when you observe them or when you view them through machines like telescopes or whatever? It's it's less colored. Like, what is that process like? How is that different from visual uh, perception? Yeah, I mean, there's, of course, a lot of priors because we've been observing the sky and our environs for now centuries. So there are different ways of categorizing it, as as we heard from Barsha. So, for instance, one direct way to do it is to understand the radiation that, that that object is emitting. So you look at it in different electromagnetic wavelength bands. You say, is it optical? Is it infrared? Is it ultraviolet? And so there are some extreme objects that, for instance, were discovered a few decades ago, gamma ray emitters. And so, you, you know, things are, are emitting and things are... Um, functioning in different wavelength bands. And so that's how we categorize these objects. And there's typically priors to all of them. And we're always, of course, taken by surprise. Not always, but many times we're taken by surprise when we see something that seems to not obey these uh, prior, uh, you know, sort of bins that in which we place objects. But we, you know, everything is informed. Our understanding of an object is informed both by our theoretical uh, an extremely good theoretical understanding of the universe and the uh, the prior understanding of the types of radiation that these objects emit. And in your case, Shravan, the, the various stars individually would emit radiation within very, very narrow frequency bands or very specific. No, they're very broad. For instance, the sun mm. emits uh, radiation all the way from infrared to gamma rays. Uh, infrared's basically among the lowest, uh, even radio, so it goes right. even lower than that. So it's very, very long wavelength to very short wavelength, and it's a huge spectrum. But, you know, unlike, for instance, gamma ray emitters, they've concentrated amounts of energy in this. You don't have as much gamma ray radiation from the sun, which is why the Earth survives. But you have X-rays, you have plenty of X-rays from the sun, plenty of ultraviolet, so you have a full spectrum. And if you had to form a picture of what the sun is, do we look at the same face of the sun all the time? And the sun is obviously rotating. Yeah. Um, and if you had to form a picture, a uh, picture within quotes of what the insides of the sun is like, and like wh- what is that process like? Are you asking in the sense of how we construct a picture? Yes, or? how do we construct a picture? How do you know what the inside of a sun is like now? Right. Uh, so this is a, a broad topic of study called seismology, which is, you know, you, you may have heard of, and it's also how people study the interiors of opaque objects. And yeah. so we apply it not just to the sun and Earth, but to other planets, including Jupiter and lots of stars. And the way we do it is... Um, uh, so electromagnetic radiation doesn't propagate freely within the interior of the sun. Yeah, it doesn't go and reflect back to you. Yeah, so what what actually happens is uh, that you have sound waves, uh, the waves in which, we, in fact, we're speaking, that are excited by the motions of fluid at the surface of the sun. These waves propagate inside uh, the solar interior and they re-emerge at the surface. And uh, and they bounce and they, you know, they keep bouncing and they form what are known as resonances. So it's a bit like um, you, have a, you have a metal sphere and then you hit it with a little gong and you can hear, you can hear these sounds, right? And so from... So you can already, for instance, from a simple perspective of a human being, or, you know, like you could go into a dark room, you know, if you shouted, you could estimate the size of this room. Right. Just by the time that it takes for sound to travel. 
and bats do it in a much more sophisticated way. So, for instance, this is a very interesting thing that I... That but you're, you're not sending so sound waves or the equivalent of them to the sun, right? The sun is producing it on its own. On its own. So and you so you have a range of frequencies in which the sun oscillates. It already tells you so much about the sun. What its average density is, what its size is, what its composition is. And then you can start to do extraordinarily sophisticated things. Uh, it's amazing the things that you can see. And how stable is the inside of the sun? Obviously, it's not. And like, there's a bunch going on. There are convection waves and so on. So it depends on which aspect, you, which property. It depends which... on what you mean by stable. So there's different words, uh, different interpretations of stable. The sun is stable in the sense it's not going to explode or not going to do right. anything dramatic for a long, long time. And so it's it's of course there's convection at the surface of the sun. So the heat is being transported by the movement of plasma or by the movement of fluid. So in that sense, it's, it can be violent. And uh, you have these huge magnetic uh, uh, solar flares, solar and flares, and things, the magnetic events that are that are can be quite violent and very destructive for uh, modern infrastructure. Interesting. Uh, in the Jeet, I think we've seen two very different worlds, um, very very briefly. Uh, from your standpoint, we'll maybe just think of the word reification for a second. What is that? What is this process of making an object out of out of various sorts of situations? Yeah, so reification is basically a method for, uh, is a kind of conceptualization where, you know, out of the flux of experience, you individuate entities and you decide you're going to distinguish this entity from another and you give it a name. So, for example, of all these shapes which we construct, we, we are building chairs and we see the sun and so we isolate it and distinguish it from something else. Now, the reason you want to reify and is because you want to essentially uh, reason with it, either use it, uh, so you could be view it as a categorization, you, you have some sort of category and uh, then you can predicate properties of it. So if it's, a, uh, you know, for example, red, blue, and green are colors, uh, and then you might just say, uh, I'm going to talk about red, the color, and you reify it. So now you, you individuate red, and now you can establish properties of redness as a property, and then you can talk about what it means to be a property and the language of properties. So you can keep making higher and higher predications, and this gives you more expressiveness. Uh, but there's a sort of limit to how much you want to reify. Is this a subjective exercise or you think of it as really literally uh, testing the object that we've individuated, getting its values? How, where is it on the objective, subjective, nominal, real spectrum? Obviously, uh, it would depend on the domain, I imagine. Yeah, I think it depends on the domain uh, and you know what sort of data you're, if you view it in terms of a sort of uh, inference process, you're starting out with uh, data and then you're trying to construct categories out of the data. So um, you would only abstract away the categories which are of importance for your particular task or domain. At the same time, uh, you know, these categories may not be explicit. So you might not, uh, for example, uh, the category for chair in a very sort of sub-symbolic way like the neural nets currently use would be a set of a word association vector of all the different words with go with chair and the corresponding weights from the training data. So you, know, you can sit in a chair, you can throw it, that would have a slightly lower weight than sitting or you can make a chair. 
and so but there would be no such thing as chairness in the neurons uh, the, the chair itself would not have any intrinsic chairness now if you wanted to reason about it and get more symbolic then you would you know create this property of being a chair and then so the question arises whether you know so one could uh, one could look at a vast corpora like a large novel or something and ask this model whether there are chairs in here um whether or not it's being referred to as one and and it could potentially with some work respond accurately to a question of that nature uh yeah i mean you could ask questions once you analyze the corpus you could ask any kind of question you like and you know the words you asking your question don't necessarily have to be exactly the same words which are there right. in the data so there's some inferential gap through these associational links which are uh, determined by the statistical uh, by the basically the probabilities of these words co-occurring this is in the simplest possible models in more advanced uh, but these tend to be more uh, domain specific you will have more of a uh, a set of um, properties associated with chairs which would be sort of priors or built in as top down knowledge in the system and then for example in a robotics application or something like that which yeah. is, you would have some notion of the objects you are moving around with and then you know you'd be getting sensor data from your uh, you know sensors and then you would be sort of trying to build up uh, evidence for one object or another is this a, is this a pedestrian is this a telegraph pole what is it or you know another vehicle so there you've got some expectations in the domain of what these categories are it's not just the word the associations between sensor inputs are these more or less solved problems like th- this this business of uh, visual recognition shape recognition uh, knowing what's there apprehending things solved uh, solved to the extent that as varsha was saying it's not there are many open ended questions even about perception and how the human does things as far as machines are concerned you can test you can construct uh, test sets and try and see how accurately uh, systems are able to recognize for example uh, in certain classification tasks and so uh, the the larger questions are so you could get fairly high accuracy on facial recognition but then as we know these may be biased by the training by data by the training sets yeah. yeah and and then there's the whole issue where does it transfer to new kinds of data so have you overfitted on the training data and therefore you can't really generalize so the ability to generalize you know people use various kinds of methods to transfer the knowledge they've gained from one domain to another but they're not really uh, these systems aren't really capturing the generalizations in any way which can be reasoned with as yet so you don't really know what makes the chair or the object in one data corpus different from <laughs> the object in another data set and or in another language so it's a bit difficult to generalize and arrive at more abstract uh, categories so it's unsolved in that sense that you don't have a a very good handle across domains on these kinds of problems of categorization in general what should do we perceive probabilistically like when we're looking things around there's so many things around us is are we like in our heads assigning probability weights to okay this is this this is that or how how sharp how sharp is that process do we do we perceive probabilistically in the sense of saying that 
what are the odds of me detecting things in my environment or yeah like if i'm looking at this scene in front of me there are obviously very various objects and this is a bulb and that's a wall and this is a mic and so on yeah now do they sit in my head with 100% probability weights or 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 no like no you know what i mean no i do think um or let me put it this way because there's a chance that wire could be a snake absolutely. and so on you know what i mean so yes. like how does that work because it's eventually a process of recognizing the object has a big it's role a, to play in whether i survive sure. it's actually state specific is what i believe so if this room is you know badly lit and you happen to be in a stressed and anxious manner you're most likely to mistake uh but if this room is well lit so it's very context specific in that sense so there's no and we don't believe we're in a state of danger or attack and so on then we're likely to be more relaxed and so on you, you yeah so that that's sense. what i said that it's it's state specific it varies tremendously over and about this explanation yes there are things when things go wrong where you would start resorting to this template that everything that's dark and lying on the floor is a snake now that's what i mean that this is a deviation from the normal trajectory so but on an average in normal healthy condition you would not take that as a default unless the state evokes a response of that kind uh which is context specific uh context which is external as well as internal did you just walk out of a movie that had a lot of snakes and now the template of snake is at the top of the mind and you're most likely to mistake an object such as snake so you're sort of primed towards a particular template otherwise you're not which is a good thing like you would in an environment uh we pick and choose carefully based on our priors and based on the existing present condition as well let's say you didn't watch a movie that had a lot of snakes but you just were thinking about it something reminded you of something and now that particular template is evoked and you're most likely to make a mistake and what is a mental image yeah that one because if i see a mic in front of me yeah. uh, or whatever is in front of you the thing that i see yeah. i at the same time almost simultaneously also have an image of it in my head like the retinal image as well as the mental image are they both there at the same time do they like what is the dynamic what is that process what is a mental image how do we manipulate it it help us get some grasp of that so the mental image is something that i do try to study I do think that um, over a period of time we do build uh, these templates which are accessible to us without relying on immediate sensory input that's uh-huh. creating it. Um so I could sit here and still imagine what's what's my house looking like at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Uh that's an image that would pop up with great clarity because i have seen my house at 3 o'clock so, but this is retrieval from memory this is memory you could also visualize something that you've never seen before i could i might not be so accurate and right. that thing that i'm visualizing would also have cues from my previous memory so this is like a raw material that i won't be able to create a fresh new template with a fresh new raw material let me put it this way so if i were to ask to imagine an academician's house at 3 o'clock someone who teaches in paris and i've never met but if i assume that it's a female and the new ad 
keep adding more pieces of information and you keep deriving a template. And that template would be, let's say, she's a female but not married, not with children. Then I'm going to retrieve the templates of all single colleagues that I've had. So you do need a reference point and you sort of, it contributes to it. So the raw material even to create something from the scratch that you've not seen would have residuals of your previous experiences and your memories, your expectations. Yeah, I'd just like to add to that that uh, when we talk about visualization and the imagination, we're dealing with, you know, the notions of veridicality sort of start to slip away at some point. So, uh, and we find a lot of this with, uh, say, AI-generated art today where, you know, it's synthesizing a face or a scene from many, many millions of little face features and scene features and uh, you get some very amusing uh, pictures like a hippie look of the Last Supper painting, for example, which which seemed to us to be incongruous, but with a nevertheless quite realistic, but would never, very unlikely to occur together, others in, in actual experience. So the question which arises is, are there any, uh, you know, Plausibility seems a very, at least in the world of fiction and art, there's some sort of notion of plausibility which is a replacement for veridicality. Right. And uh, so you you sort of check off that this visualization makes sense and it's acceptable. You're willing to suspend disbelief when you look at it, but it still has to meet some notion of, uh, even within a virtual world of being quote-unquote realistic. So there's some sort of transformation process and beyond that transformation, it's too warped to, not just in shape, but in many features to be uh, acceptable. So there is there is an association with the prior worlds and the new template is in a way constituted by several major and minor transformations of the previous one. I have a different but, I mean, sort of the same take on this. This is broadly actually a very sophisticated inverse problem that the brain solves. Mm -hmm. So you have an enormous amount of information that's, you know, in terms of photons and reflections and shadows and colors. And there's, there's a, as I said, there's an enormous amount of information that's coming as electromagnetic radiation passing through your your uh, cornea, then et cetera, the very complicated optical system that's your eye being projected on the screen, that's re the retina, but the retina itself is is deformed a little bit or warped. And uh, so there's all of this information that's then collected by the optic nerve, fed into the visual cortex, which I think consumes two-thirds of your entire computing power in your brain. So, right. so all of this information, the raw information, is an enormous amount of information. And then you apply all of the, the lessons you've learned in life. Uh, as a kid, you know, for instance, that walls are you know, could meet at perpendicular, you know, or the angles are perpendicular and, you know, you know, you know how shadows fall and you have all of this experiential information, which is very difficult actually in a in an analytical sense to put in put as constraints. But you're solving this inverse problem. You're saying, what is the best conceptual idea of this situation given this information that I've learned, given all the assumptions that I know to hold. And then you say, okay, well, this is this is what this is what I think it is. And then you notice only the deviations, everything else is... And so right. actually what's really interesting is if you've ever tried uh, drugs, uh, and specifically these uh, hallucinatory drugs, yeah. those filters go down. Right. And then you start to see, I mean, I've 
me and I shouldn't confess it, but let's say, let's say no, a close no, friend of mine. Let's say a close else. friend of mine has tried uh, shrooms, for instance, and uh, then everything looks different. Assumptions go away, and uh, some of those some of those theories that you have are not operational because they're suppressed by these drugs or or whatever happens internally, and then the world starts to look very different. And colors look different. Things look different in terms of reflections. What well, but they with the same photons, yeah, with the same yeah. data set impinging on your cornea. Yeah, yeah, because you're just excluding all these uh, possibilities. You're excluding all this information. You're not even seeing things. You're blind spots, so to speak, and all of that information is cast away. I mean, we we do this. So, Varsha is an expert on hallucinogens. What happens? Why are we unable to see the world normally? when on drugs well not really an expert but uh, see not just under drugs the world looks different even in the morning when you've just woken up uh, before your first cup of coffee the same world looks very different on a very fatigued long day uh, the thoughts about the world also differs at these two points so i do think that that kind of a cyclic nature of just depleting resources has a certain functionality again there's a reason why we all go to sleep periodically we shut down the sun goes down and we sort of doze off uh, so the system is just requires that kind of a rebooting so i do think that this truncating of information that we are constantly being bombarded uh we certainly do require a lot of information and the more the better but there's sort of a curtailing of it that also helps even in a natural sense without resorting to drugs or any stimulant or depressant or anything that you'd want there's a natural cycle to which we tune off like i joke with my students that i have a 1 hour 20 minutes lecture their attention span in the first 10 minutes and their attention span in the last 10 minutes is not the same and they've had they've consumed nothing in between right. we just it has its own utility of uh scaling up and scaling down they're able to retain and over periods of times of scaling up and down whatever they do understand contributes to their conceptualization their learning and their memory and that i think is good enough uh i would not assume it's not a camera uh so it so what is attention i think that's probably where you're going because this volitional aspect where you're somehow able to direct your attention to something um how does that work i think uh, i'm a goal directed sort of i said i began to goal directing so information that you're that you're entertaining at currently at the moment and you can only do justice to a little bit of it and the way you pick and choose which information would you attend to is a function of your goals your expectations your priors again So um, your models are they goal directed? How do you look so you you're doing a scan of the sky or whatever or you have all that crazy amount of data out there um what would be the equivalent of attention in that case you look, you have a hypothesis you go about looking for something and then your algos do something that they do what what's the commonality with the way humans perceive things 
I, I think well, it's it's uh, it's actually very very closely related. Except I think the human the the brain processes a much larger, much more complex inverse problem. But it's very similar in the sense that if I want to investigate what's going on in the interior of the sun, for instance, or stars, yeah, I know that the, it's likely to not be something completely crazy. I know stars aren't made of iron, like solid iron, right? I know yeah. that they're basically all gas or fluid. And so if I get if I arrive at a density that's the interior, let's say the sun that's eight thousand grams per meter cubed or some whatever the the uh, the I I think that's the density of iron whatever sure. whatever if I arrive in my inverse that's problem obviously wrong. Th there's a problem if I say the composition is something you know that's very dense metal like mostly then that's that's a problem right and then if I see that the properties such as the, the speed of sound inside the interior of the star is is changing extremely rapidly like fluctuating very rapidly then I know that that's a problem that it's you know I don't have the resolution to make these types of you know but that is when you play very close attention to this one object that you have a crazy amount of data on but we we don't have the same amount of information or data on every single star out there but again we have priors right we know we know right. likely from experience that it's not going to be this it's not going to be this and and so on and so forth despite all of those assumptions we still don't know what's going on you can still have a very large number of uh, explanations for for the uh, observations um, but yes where we do apply these priors is very similar to that in, in the brain the way the brain works interesting and uh, how is this case of uh looking at many bodies different from looking at just one body uh so for instance if you look at many stars they're very far away so you have much less information let's say from each star and then we look at the sun of course much closer much higher resolution much better signal to noise so there's an enormous amount of data very high quality data of the sun so you get all these details of the sun you get coarse details of all these stars but together when you synthesize all of this you can build a a you know on ensemble theory of how the sun operates uh, or how stars operate for instance the idea is to prove this grand theory of stellar evolution uh, and and use all of this information to understand how magnetic fields in stars arise is the solar system unique or you know, you know because we have we only know of life in 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 our solar system is is it possible that other sun like stars have stellar systems so all of these types of questions you can ask just from these small amounts of data and having a crazy amount of data on the sun helps you study all the other stars yes yes it does it's because it's like a benchmark if you if you study an enormous amount of data but you know, not all stars are sun like right and they vary no, but, in their uh, mass and some could be like neutron stars you're and absolutely whatnot, right. right so yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. but uh, it's like a benchmark right so you know that there are other stars like the sun and so you apply your methods to these other stars like the sun and then you say well okay my method works so then maybe i can trust it a little more now so you 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 have a place to start you know and uh and then you then you push the boundary you push the envelope a little bit okay well now i can study heavier stars i can study lighter stars i can do more with this now i had a quick question uh what social scientists always get very very stressed about is n equal to 1 you're studying is there a problem in the field like you're studying one astral body right yeah i mean the sun you mean you study, yes. yeah yeah i mean this you know you have to be aware that you're studying just the sun then you study all these other stars and uh um, but is that a good enough uh, but the sun is also like other stars which are sun like like they belong to a class is the, the sun a unique star no this is the question this is the question the right question. is the sun is the sun have does the sun have any unique elements to favor life for instance or are other sun like stars like the sun i mean that's actually a very important question are sun like stars like the sun yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, you know. So and it turns out, I think increasingly because that is, it's, that's in a way like saying, what does it mean to be sun-like? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not just the luminosity and the size of the star. There are yeah. lots of other properties. Like, what are the magnetic fields? If the sun had an enormously strong magnetic field, we may not have had life on Earth. It might have just blown away all the water, for instance, blown away our atmosphere. So there are many aspects to the physics of sun-like stars, and they have to be like the sun, presumably. To, to be able to sustain these types of life forms, to sustain planets, and so on. And evidence suggests that sun-like stars are, in fact, like the sun. How does one deal with the uniqueness in this reification business? Because, no, obviously we are saying that, okay, there are other stars which are sun-like. Um, the moment we have a reification attitude to things in the Jeet, it kind of presupposes classes and membership to those classes. Sure, there could be varying number of members and so on. But what happens there? Well, As uh, one designs all kinds of tools and techniques and all kinds of objects to apprehend the world. Obviously, I'm going in the AI direction now. Yeah, there are many ways you can look at this. One, one is in terms of saying there's, you know, one reality and different views of it. And so, you know, some views may filter out certain properties of an object or even collapse things together. In uh, another sort of approach might be based on granularity. So, you know, you choose not to distinguish certain objects from each other because uh, you believe uh, that they're all unique uh, yeah they they fall they they you know they all sun like so you just say this is the sun and then when you get more you want to drop down into a more uh, fine grained uh, representation what do you mean you... by granularity just so that we get the technical register right you uh, mean they might have 18 different parameters but they all have different values you mean it in that sense uh, right. So, so for example, you know, let's say you're measuring something, and you uh, you're talking about temperature, and you know, you you have a certain precision of measurement, and then you might drop that precision and say, you know, I'm going to only distinguish things by uh, ten degrees. So this is in the temperatures in the fifties, the forties, and it turns out that there's a kind of order of magnitude reasoning that humans often carry out. So, you know, if you're asked to estimate distances or sizes, is this larger than the other, then, you know, we yeah, order... It doesn't matter whether the temperature is 49.7, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we, some have proposed that we reason sort of half orders of magnitude. But anyway, there, there's some sort of rough coarse grain reasoning and so also uh, common sense models of the world, which so, you know, our notion of the sun is probably very different from the notion uh, Shravan is discovering through his tools. But we have, for our purposes on everyday life, you're a farmer, you have enough of a sort of knowledge base of the sun's behavior to carry out your farming practices, which doesn't have to drop into the fine-grained granularity of actually distinguishing. In that domain, yes. In that domain, it's good enough. So likewise, in the AI world, we have sort of similar notions, but it's very hard to get, figure out, I mean, there are notions like micro theories or, you know, different kinds of worlds, micro worlds you might be in, but it's hard to know which world you're in at any given time. Yeah. And so if you look at the whole thing statistically, then it's a question of, you know, what are your initial biases or priors towards, you know, in this whole space of possible objects or entities, which ones do you want to prefer initially? And then, you know, as you have more experience, you might want to drop down into some other, uh, you know, downgrade some and upgrade others. And so those come into more focus. And are there situations where one needs uh, very high precision? Right, right. Or is it all a probabilistic, proximal field? Um. 
Well, usually you have some sort of... Uh, most systems today, you know, even if they involve a level of reasoning, they do emit something which can be mapped to probabilities. And then you have, uh, you know, notions of, uh, you know, precision and recall or sensitivity and, you know, the ability to sort of decide where among these parameters you want to really situate uh, something useful. So if it's if it's not uh, accurate enough to use for so in a particular task, you know, like medical diagnosis or something, yeah. you want very high precision. precision. Yeah. And if you miss a lot, it may not really matter, but yeah. you don't want false positives or something like that. Yeah. In other cases, maybe the other way around. Yeah, or gene editing or things of that nature. Like right, you, you don't right. want to be too approximate in those kinds of situations. Or surgery, uh, or surgery. surgery and so forth, yeah. Where are we in the approximation business in your world? Like how approximate are things or is everything precise? I mean, the, that question itself is unfortunately a very imprecise question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what, what aspect. Uh, there are things that we know really well. There are things that we don't know well at all. So if you said... What um, yeah? What do we understand the lumen? So magnetic field of let's say you have data on 100 million stars. Obviously, you have no. Data. So that, I was yeah. just going to get to that. So we understand the luminosity radius. There's a there's some very, there's a there's a diagram called the HR diagram which describes how the luminosities, radii, and temperatures of the stars are related. That we know extremely well with very high precision. Yeah, with a pretty high precision and and so on. Uh, but um, but what we don't know is, uh, for instance, the magnetic fields of these stars, the rotation rates of these stars. How are they spinning? How are they spinning down as they age and things like that? And there are very complicated processes that we can't easily model. And we don't. We, magnetic fields are the are the most complicated of all. We just don't know. We just don't have very much data on this. So that is very imprecise. Interesting. And and I think we discussed this already in your case. Uh, are mental images sharp? Sharp in the sense accurate, you mean to say? No, sharp. Like, are they are they hazy? Are they sharp? Are they approximate? Are they... They're approximate for sure. But even, uh, even to me, uh, I think my field really thrives on approximation. I would be very skeptical if I see accuracy in what I measure. So perception, for instance, or memory can't be extremely accurate and consistent and, you know, resistant to variability. I would be very, very worried if, for instance, I measured just memory and recall, and there were there was a student who came up with exact scores of the number of items they could recall accurately, and the reaction time that they took to recall those items was exact the same for three decimal points. I said, so this has to be up. an yeah. error. Yeah. So this is just to give you an example that here, if I see uh, this level of precision and consistency and non-variability, I'm going to get worried. So for me, it's approximation would be things are good. Yeah, sure. It's a little bit, um, I think the more precise way to think about this is that a, a process is not mapped only by its mean, as in an expected behavior, but a process is also uh, uh, characterized by its higher Mental. moments, such as its uncertainty, and then there are higher order moments, yeah. like kurtosis and, and like you know systematic. the entire distribution curve. Yeah, so yeah. you need you need all of the moments to characterize the full process, and they all have to hew to your conventional expectations, and so that's how you characterize a stochastic process. So not just by the expected value or expectation. 
and in in our case in human situations varsha um one would imagine we've been talking about these images again and again so that's kind of like spatial information yeah. or spatial data i would imagine that there's something also more verbal there's verbal data how do the two interplay with each other as we go about life as we yeah. store memories as we manipulate the world process things sure Uh, and how does that link to theory of mind yeah i'm fascinated by how we code information that comes to us uh for instance this recording is a set of visual information and it's a set of auditory information uh so whether our concepts and categories that we form are preferentially being fed by one versus the other is an interesting question and i recently did take it up to understand theory of mind our ability to impute representations of others and what do we rely on when we do that so we really don't know how the brain stores information in my theory of mind you mean what the other person may be thinking what the of. other person might be thinking or what your thoughts about other person's thoughts are yeah so the nature of thought and what sort of feeds or makes that thought uh sounds make that thought or visuals make that thought so this is something an interesting uh, thriving hypothesis called material specificity whether the brain stores information contingent on the nature of the material that it's storing assuming there are two separate folders for auditory and visual information you mean so i have images of elephant in my brain and i've also read a bunch of things on elephant and th- those are two separate folders yes you mean that yes right. so information that's verbal linguistic has a category and information that's just visual uh, what you rightfully said is uh, a lot of our information preference is visual there's a space dedicated to visual sensory uh system which is disproportionate uh, for sure but i personally don't know is it because we study the visual system much more than auditory system tactile olfactory uh gustatory there are more than one senses but we certainly do study visual perception disproportionately than any other perception so our the extent to which we know it uh is also a function of how much we are dedicated to studying that particular question is uh, i mean i i would actually argue that um that all of this information it may be stored in separate folders but when you do recollect uh, a moment they all come into play sure. i mean you can tactile information olfactory information auditory and visual information can all can all come together right so the recall in some sense is a command that that pulls together information so i mean does this have any impact on this material storage uh, hypothesis Yeah I I do agree but when things go wrong I'd like to identify which aspect which property uh is contributing less to perception as such which is where the pathology comes in there's a particular kind where you have one specific process which is disrupted when the rest of it is going on pretty fine so even in in the case of an epilepsy or something so in epilepsy or in aphasia different kind of aphasia so you could have the ability to produce words which is lost but the ability to comprehend words is intact so you do know there's a certain extent of modularity uh that a system would need to have uh for sure so that just helps you understand and 
I don't have very strong take on modularity of any complex system, but it just helps you study it slightly. It renders itself to studying much better. Uh, you could look at double dissociation. Uh, so this is electromagnetic. So if you take out different components which are contributing to the process that you're studying, it just helps you understand it better. So you dismantle each and sort of look around and put it back and see, try and understand what its contribution to this idea of what is a concept, what is a thought made of. So uh, so to this question of, and we'll just go there in the G, so are these separate folders? They, I do uh, believe at this point. Or do point, they help bind each other? Like what they're happens? certainly bound, they're integrated. We produce a world and a perception that's well integrated. Uh, but at some stage, the sensory system is coding only one kind of information. And that information, uh, to what extent would it retain uh, visual, the nature of it? Uh, for instance, you will, every time you think of an elephant, yes, you'd have like a well-integrated perception that emerges. But at the same time, there's a texture that you can imagine of the ears or the wrinkled folds of the skin. Uh, the blackness or the grayness of this. Uh, so this color which is contributing preferentially, this size that's contributing disproportionately to the template of an elephant. So, so it all how, comes how together. So how does it all link to this theory of mind issue? Yes, so the theory of mind is a much more complex than just object categorization. Theory of mind says that we have uh, ability to impute thoughts of others information that's represented in somebody else's mind. Uh, I was pretty interested in that. And I thought that what allow us to think of thoughts of others is a visual. Like I know what Shravan looks like at this point. He's focusing, concentrating. Right. Um, and maybe I've heard or read about him. These two pieces of information would help me think of what his thoughts are, would provide but some access. But if you never, if you never met Shravan physically and you yeah. didn't know what he looked like and yeah. so on, and never interacted with him, your ability to read Shravan would be dramatically lower. Yeah. So this might inferior. answer your question on how sharp is the mental image, yeah. right? The sharpness of that mental image is a function of what information that I carry. I know he works at TIFR. I have a particular template of what people who work in TIFR might do or look or behave or live a life of. Right. Uh, I, so I know he's a returnee. He spent time outside India. That builds another set of information that's layered. All of these would contribute to the sharpness of the mental image. But the sharpness of the mental image? Yes. Mental image of, of, Shravan. of Shravanness or of Shravan? And also his thoughts. Once I have that template, the sharper it is, the more ease with which I can impute thoughts that he might hold. But this would not have been possible. Let's say I know he spent years abroad. If I have not spent years abroad and I don't know what Taco Bell looks like or what Costco shopping is or what uh, the whole experience is, there's no way that's going to help me right. uh, build an image about him or impute thoughts that he might have and predict those accurately. Does this surprise you, Indrajit, what, uh, what Varsha is saying or it, it it's resonates with the way you think of things? Yeah, actually it does. Uh, I just wanted to add that, uh, you know, these concepts uh, as opposed to percepts are very heavily influenced by the language we speak. Mm -hmm. And so we're not just looking at linguistic items, but whole languages and their... 
you know, the structures uh, of language speakers in the brain, which influence what categories you distinguish. So, for example, some languages may uh, distinguish certain colors and only those from others. It doesn't mean that their percepts are going to be necessarily different. But their concepts they, are... Their concepts are going to be different. Uh, and like, the markers are linguistic. Like markers are linguistic. Another example would be, like, I live in Thailand and there are lots of different words for different types of clouds and, you know, weather patterns, which other languages I speak, uh, I speak quite a few, don't seem to have. And so uh, if you just use a generic term to communicate, people are not going to really say, no, that's not the weather today. This is this heavy pregnant with, you know, uh, moisture kind of sticky weather. And uh, it goes deeper because the whole reasoning processes get affected. So, for example, uh, some languages, uh, you know, when we talk about space, an orientation in space, which of course affects your body and the position of other objects that you see, your own body and others. Um, some languages use, uh, like English, use people use three different coordinate systems. Uh, an intrinsic coordinate system, like it's to my left or to my right, and it's a relative, co- uh, you know, it's, it's the left of that tree or behind the house. And then they use some kind of quasi-absolute coordinates, uh, which may be, uh, like northwest, uh, yeah, yeah. It could, be, it could be, or, yeah, cardinal directions or derived from that. Nobody is using GPS per se to in order to uh, you yeah. know give uh, directions. Uh, but uh, what happens is, you know, in people who there are some languages which exclusively use absolute coordinates, and you can force these speakers, especially like Australian Aboriginal languages, where uh, they they actually don't have systems for relative expressing relative and even the intrinsic uh, vocabulary is very limited. So if somebody were to say uh, next to Shravan's shoe, there's a watch out. There's a bee or a worm walking next to your shoe. They would say there's a worm north of north northwest of your shoe. And this is all documented in right. experimental data. So so there and these people are people who actually happen to be. Uh, hunter-gatherers originally and had very strong navigational skills. And so uh, they're very acute sense of where their bodies are in space. And even if they're not near landmarks, which can tell them uh, which is north and how south they're, how they're uh, or the weather in a sun position, they, they'll be able to tell you. So in a sense, the language they speak and the world they live in have both conditions. But language is mainly the residue of their experiences and their process of concept formation you know, because it doesn't start in language, it goes there. And then it lives there. Isn't that accurate? We don't really know. I mean, in the sense that, uh, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, there'll be other creatures who don't have human language who will be navigating in that space who may have very different proprioception. Yeah, their communication systems. Their sensory systems are different. But for humans, I mean, these things have gone hand in hand. So we don't know in what order these things really... I I don't know anyway. It's an open question. Yeah. So... So going back to your thing, uh, because you have met Shravan, you you have better read of his thoughts, or or it's richer. It's richer, but uh, that sort of where's where's the body in all this? Well, the body, even the body which didn't interact, but it's the body that was reading. It's the body that has experienced academicians from different environment and 
over those exposures. And, and it truly bit. mean the body, not just the brain or something. Yeah, I'm sort of referring to the whole body. And uh, why is that important? It's important. Why does one need the whole body to perceive an object? Because the brain is fed by the body's experiences. It's not in isolation. So all the surfaces that I touched, which were rough, all the content that I ate, which was warm and hot and cold, uh, objects that I saw that varied in size and magnitude, all of this has contributed to my ability to estimate size, distance, color, uh, sharpness, loudness. All these attributes that we use uh, are a function of what the body has been exposed to, has gone through quite a bit. You take that out, then you have nothing else but a hard disk, right, full of how information. How can you be sure? Like, how do you know? I know because I landed up studying, just to answer that question, uh, people who've experienced uh, spinal cord injury, which restricts the information from the rest of the body to the brain, the central nervous system. So we tried asking them to imagine objects that, um, well, objects as well as body parts. So we, when you ask them to look at images of the lower limb, which is no longer functioning for a really long period of time. Uh, they do take longer compared to fit, able body. Even, even to like just perceive it? Even to perceive it. Which is like to actually just see it. So this is for them to identify either of the limb, whether this is right limb or just simple categorization. Right. Are they looking at a right limb or a left limb? It takes a little bit of a while, but the prediction is that because of disability and disusage, it's going to no longer be accessible to the brain. And you'd take longer, you'd make more errors in categorizing whether you're looking at the right limb or left limb, just simply because of disusage. So that's how I know that the body and this interoceptive feedback is important to mental activities such as concepts and categorizations. As a, as a computer scientist in the Jeet, what is the body for you? Because at least when we think of computer systems, we tend to think of them as like a bunch of code, data systems, algos, looking at patterns, correlations, and things of that sort. Um, it doesn't somehow feel like embodied knowledge. Now, maybe we're just making another mistake here and doing... Making the, human categories out of these kind of systems, and that the, itself is a fundamental error. But like, where are you on this? Well, you know, there there are certainly computer scientists who, AI AI who, are, who are very much uh, sort of into embodied cognition, and you know, they want they want to emulate um, some of the uh, not human bodies necessarily, but whatever size, for example, robots you're building, you, you want to have knowledge of the body inform the decision. So a lot of reasoning is being carried out reflexively based on, uh, you know, your motor systems and so forth. But uh, at the same time, 
the world I come from is a little very disembodied and is 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 just because that's just, NLP. The, the NLP, NLP and NLP and you know some computer vision and so forth. And you're not really dealing with yeah, but cyber physical systems would have to think of that. Yeah, once you're doing the full integrated system, it's much different. And you're doing with navigation or something like that. Then you know, or or you know, robotic arms and legs. Then you know, you have to have some very richer notions of the body. However, I have another side. You said as a computer scientist, but I'm I'm still a human being ultimately and i do feel you know like uh, motion for example i have studied motion in language and written co-authored a book on it but i'm also um, uh, for example very conscious aware of my body and as i do more and more exercises like pilates and yoga and so forth i'm asked to visualize parts of my body and control muscles i never knew i could control and the more i stimulate those muscles the better uh, sort of I feel generally. Now, whether this is a delusional state or actually I am feeling better, but I, I mean, How I can have to be say? measured. No, you have to measure whether you know, has my blood pressure come down? Am I am I actually in better health as a result of this, or am I just, you know, I'm having some, you know, maybe my particular brain waves are being you know stimulated while doing this. But so you know, it relates to this notion of. Uh, Having more knowledge of your body, just like these uh, unrelatable limbs due to paralysis or something like that, or severing of connections, the more you integrate in your body, my suspicion is that you have better internal models of your body, more more richer internal models of your body, and then you can control it better, actually the muscles better, and also when you do like meditative exercise, like shutting down parts of your body, you can start to focus more on particular parts of your body and, you know, you can really fine grain the control of your breath, for example, and well, this gets into very personal meditative practices and you know yoga and so forth. But uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from the sort of psychological <laughs> effects of these kinds of practices on uh, perception, uh, introception, and you know your notion of yeah. yeah. I don't know what the other perceptions are. I sort of wanted to just add to what you were saying about without resorting to meditative practices. I've just started reading, but the sounds and articulation also rely on the way the vocal cord is. It's a very sort of a physical uh, part of a body that contributes to pronunciations, very mechanical, very, yeah. mechanical, very motor aspect to language. Uh, like a phonosymbolism in a certain sense. And apart from that, the lived experiences would translate into needs for descriptions of those lived experiences and would sort of, or the expression of those experiences would sort of contribute. So you can't really bypass the body mm -hmm. uh, in that sense. At least spoken words, uh, I was reading this one word, uh, body of work, Cynthia, which I don't know if you're familiar with. So what we're trying to now look at is to go through text and just try and look at uh, specific sounds that express specific emotions in the text. And it's really amazing that over and above what language you're speaking, emotions as a body experience or the one that involves bodily experience, physiological correlates, 
That's what music does, doesn't it? Sorry? That's what music is for. Like one of the things that music does, not what music is for. Yes, but music is still sound assuming, even if you're producing, depending on categories, singing and so on and so forth. But this one says that just uh, the key and kaka effect... um, This is amazing. You mean the booba kiki effect? The booba kiki effect and yeah. something similar. So I don't, I've just started work. But it's amazing that alveolar sound, sounds that come from a specific part of of the vocal cord uh, would be associated with words. And those words are articulated when the physiological state is of a particular kind, uh, which maps on really beautifully well. So the... body is contributing to production of specific words which has sounds uh, you would not get that if you were to not have the vocal cord the way it is is sort of a broad idea where's the human what's the subjective aspect of your kind of work shravan like if if there were to be hyper intelligent well modeled i know it depends on the kind of questions you're looking for and the data corpora is always changing and so on but what's the role of judgment subjectivity and so on in the kind of studies you guys do or what's the role of concept formation you use the concept percept angle a little bit or can brute computation just tons of data and tons of models they can literally figure out all the patterns that are out there in the sky So the judgment lies in choosing the right problem and so you have to realize that you know there's a certain body of work and you have to be very creative if you want to you know contribute meaningfully to some discipline you have to find a problem that and a new way of looking at something I mean there are these remarkable leaps right in hypotheses that people uh, come up with um, you know there are cited thousands of times so Roger Blanford he's an astrophysicist and he uh, explained how pulsars uh, work how mm. uh, you know the, there were these uh, not pulsars sorry there were these jets that were coming from these uh, hyper dense objects very dense objects and there were these jets that were emanating from these in the 70s he conceptualized how this was happening i mean or you know you could look at a number of physicists who make these remarkable leaps okay so there's a conceptual leap that they've made that other people have not okay that's that's one way you can contribute and there's a lot of humanness in this right it doesn't just come overnight you have to be doing it for decades but just because you do it for decades doesn't mean you're able to make that right. leap some people are able to do it but then there's there's other times when brute force computation really helps you you know and uh the you know gravitational the detection of gravitational waves uh took a combination of almost everything including brute force computation they had these millions and millions of you know spectra not spectra but these hours of all of these uh, noise basically of the earth and stuff like that and they were looking for very specific signals computationally very expensive they did it or even cern the lhc it's an enormous computational effort but they've done it so it really depends and maybe there are times when it's not about comp- it's about using the data in the right ways of people who launch the right telescope in the right hardware and they're able to measure something like the guy who got a nobel prize for measuring the cosmic microwave background yeah. in 1995 not the first guy who got it who got it you know because of pure luck but the guy who got it in 1995 was this instrument that measured it for the first time so it all depends do you have the right data do you have the right concept do you have the right computing tools and so on yeah I was wondering whether uh coming from this more language oriented view whether you're sort of trapped in a world of the formalisms or the descriptive uh 
languages are used. So you're trying to explain a phenomena and then you, you know, so somebody has a conceptual leap and they come up with a set of concepts, but they're still limited by the sort of vocabulary. And so to get back to this question of subjectivity, there are obviously limitations in the sort of descriptive adequacy of the language you're using to characterize phenomena. And some it may be a question of precision or maybe that before you had uh, general relativity, for example, we didn't have these extended concepts of space-time. And so our language for describing things in you know, uh, this sort of Newtonian world was a very different language. And so I'm wondering to what extent that subjectivity is there, that you know, language is going to be, uh, these are formal languages, not, not natural language, but some sort of formal descriptive language is going to always be imprisoning us so yeah, in some true. sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so for instance, tensors, yeah, where, where did not exist before Albert Einstein. Yeah, and uh, Einstein introduced them and unlocked this tremendous set of possibilities. And so, so these conceptual languages that that are introduced, I mean, we kind of run out of these, though. I do have to say, they've really slowed down. I think can, we, can we never run out of them? I don't think there I mean, was something I mean, similar in 1900, and then obviously relativity came and quantum I think, theory I think, came. I think you know the world was a lot more uh, fresh, and there's a lot <laughs> more to discover. It's so difficult now to make. Uh, you know, uh, cosmology was such an exciting topic. I mean, just take cosmology because it's a very hot topic. But this is true of every discipline. Uh, including the brain or anything for that matter. I mean, cosmology was very hot. Just measuring the spectrum was this extraordinary, the spectrum of uh, the scales of something. It, it doesn't matter. No, don't need to. But that, that was a relatively simple thing. First, the, the, the detection of cosmic microwave background itself. The guy who discovered it in his radio telescope, he got a Nobel Prize for it. The next guy was 40 years later. And now they're talking about measuring things that are six orders in magnitude weaker, tiny signals to discern between one hypothesis and another. And we don't know when the next telescope is going to, is it going to take three decades to build something? What is that type? Is it $3 billion? Is it worth it? Then it gets into the politics of science. Is this knowledge worth creating? And you go launch it, maybe it fails. I mean, is it really worth But surely we couldn't have exhausted all the concepts that are to know out there, right? That, I, I mean, that no, I don't think case. exhausted is a very strong uh, yeah. word, but I think they're not trivial anymore. And they're not that they were ever trivial, but they've become just a lot more difficult uh, to get at. Just, I mean, look. I mean, there is this whole matter of dark matter, dark energy. Yeah, yeah, so, so there like, are outstanding who questions. Who knows, like we're talking about reification, like what is dark matter, what does it look like, or whatever it look like is a wrong word. We are humanizing the problem. <laughs> but, right. But uh, massive big questions. And no, there are questions, but I'm just saying new concepts are slower to come. Because if you think about the 1900s, there were very few scientists working, just few scientists. There were just fewer people generally <laughs> in the population-wise, and there are far fewer scientists educated enough to make these contributions. And yet, there was a few people who were able to make dramatic like quantum mechanics and relativity and general relativity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then but now there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of scientists and uh, there's a lot of junk concept papers that keep showing up, right? People yeah. have all sorts of idiotic theories, but... The number it's of, probably because there are too many people. There's just too many. There's too many. <laughs> there need to be yeah. fewer. Yeah. You know, I have a question which directly relates to um, uh, reification, and this, this has to do with infinitesimals. You know, so it takes simply the notion of a point, you know, yeah. which, which has no magnitude. Then the question arises... This is very abstract and not so it's a reification of something not seen directly in nature and which conceptually could never exist. On the other end of the scale in mathematics, you have various kinds of infinite sets, you know, uh, 
uh, uncountable numbers and you know sort of hierarchies of infinities which in turn are less likely to be seen so on the smallest scale in physics is probably you know planck's uh, constant or something like that and in the largest scale planck, i have no planck idea. length yeah yeah planck length so uh, on the highest scale we don't know so the question is you know uh, can can Cantor himself actually had a sort of breakdown and probably not because he was conceiving of all these infinities but so the question is are, are there sort of Occ- Occam's they... razor like restrictions on how much abstraction we no, should that's introduce because in... when we that's probably because when we say the conceptual world we are hyphenating it with the human conceptual world it doesn't need to be humanly understandable you know what i mean like infinitesimal might be very tricky for us to reify or hold as an object in our head it could be a human limitation that that we are unable to you know yeah. conceive of these visualize realities visualize these things visualize but it could also be the case that uh we are making them more complex than they need to be okay yeah that that, are... that 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 these these have a sort of not impossibility but they 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 the sort of unrealizability of uh, i mean particularly with infinite sets i think there's more of a question with infinitesimals maybe Uh, they they sort of um, i mean i use them all the time and you know but th- that's because i'm reductionist so I, i deal with point lines and regions and when i'm trying to reason why don't we uh, end space. with this do you think do you think of the world as being comprised of objects or like what's your mental image of the universe my mental image of the universe yes uh, what is, is your a... mental image of the universe shravan you're the closest to it i would imagine <laughs> at least compared to the rest of us i mean i would have to say it's almost as subjective as uh, the topic of the brain and it depends on what spectrum you want to look at there are things that are happening on the planck length and there are things that are happening on the grand scale of the universe or comparable to the grand scale of the universe and uh, there are objects fully covering their entire spectrum from from one to the other from and the very small infinitesimal yeah, to the very large yeah. yeah and there's a small range that affects us that uh, happen that affect our survival and the you know so and so we tend to focus on those uh-huh. but i mean i don't know it's a very subjective question as a consequence but what is your mental image of the universe that there's everything there's everything in it yeah. what is yours varsha Well, mine, I think, is just like a big scatter plot that keeps shifting quite a bit rapidly. You're making graphs all the time. <laughs> yeah, in the sense, there's just a lot of information. Uh, trying to make sense of it uh, by imposing different theoretical framework to it is, yeah, uh, you know. And the, by the time you get a hold of it, the framework changes and assumptions change, and then you're back to square one, and you're doing this iteration. To me, that's pretty much what the world is. I've not really made sense of it. it well, for, for me, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it really goes back to what Shravan was saying, which is, you know, this whole issue of scale. You know, there's the scale at which. Uh, when you think of the universe you're in awe because of the sheer vastness of the scales at which the universe operates and we of course are insignificant or we have a very narrow range in which as you were saying we operate so that actually uh, philosophically resonates with me because i do feel there's this sort of nobility to the inconsequentiality of our existence of of these sort of uh small scale in which we are compared to uh, everything else but it's also much larger than the planck length so yeah yeah we are much <laughs> larger than that and much smaller than our solar system and and you know so we we and you see the earth from out in space you know you get that feeling too so so it's a very ennobling feeling to to be to knowing that these things are um, 
you know, operating at multiple scales and we're we are living in this small space. But there's also this sense that uh, mental confusion uh, about how to conceptualize these vast systems. And so you fall back on a kind of notion of... And you of, think of them as systems and subsystems and are they like contained within each other? There's like kind of a relationship between them or they're somewhat, somewhat hermetic, somewhat isolated. I, I'm hoping, as I was saying over lunch, that there's a kind of unity of knowledge eventually and everything just ties up and there's mappings between these different theories and not just in a unified theory of everything in physics, but it ties up with how we behave because, I, you know, we are mechanical systems, I believe, and our, you know, the whole universe is kind of predictable at some level. And so if you arrived at the fundamental equations of life, um, you know, all the way from biology, psychology, to uh, physics, the cosmos. Uh, it would be very nice to arrive at that, and there has to be some uh, ultimate. Other civilizations, if they do come about, will probably grasp more of those equations, and this is what I believe, but uh, because of the, we are entangled in thoughts which uh, distract us from focusing on the bigger picture, <laughs> we tend not to, uh, be able to open ourselves up to these possibilities. So I, I think we need to be more open about connecting different disciplines and uh, notions, introspection as well, is, is not something to be shunned. So, Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thanks Thank for you coming. so much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you.